Hallelujah. He is alive. Praise His holy name. Father, we thank You this day. As You have opened our hearts to comprehend the gospel, for those of you in Christ this day, You have also opened our hearts to appreciate Your Word. We thank You that You have recorded, Lord, these glorious truths for us to pay close attention to, to write on the tables of our hearts that we might not sin against You, and that we can walk in a manner worthy of our call. We pray that You would equip us this day for hardship and for victory as we open up Your Holy Scripture. We pray that you would work, Lord, a mighty work inside of us so that we have sufficient ground, powerful foundation, and weapons of our warfare finely tuned and honed, and armaments protecting us from the fiery darts of the evil one as a consequence of your word heard, processed, believed, remembered, and proclaimed in our hearts and lives and confessions this day. We thank you, Lord, that there is such a great wealth of riches for us to explore within these pages. As we delve into them today, we pray that you would give us a heart, Lord, of appreciation and a mind that is quick to discern, a a, a boldness, Lord, that will proclaim without shame and a consistency, Lord, that will only build line upon line to our understanding. Lord, for any who may not know you as their Lord and Savior, May you use the proclaimed word today to draw them unto salvation, repentance and faith in the atonement that only you can supply and have granted us through Christ our Lord. It is in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. This morning we have the glorious privilege of opening up the scriptures, of considering them together. And letting ourselves be awestruck by the deeds of our Lord and by the equipping of His saints for the work of the ministry through the whole counsel of God. Would you turn with me today to Psalm 79? This psalm will be our passage today that we will consider at some depth 13 verses proclaiming from the mouth of Asaph truths and principles and encouraging thoughts and pleas and cries and petitions to the Lord in the midst of heartache and sadness. The title of this morning's sermon is Redeeming Sadness. Sadness can be redeemed. It can be employed in worship. A lamentation is a song of sadness offered to the Lord. The book of Lamentations is Scripture, God-breathed, Spirit-inspired, and yet it is sad. Psalm 79 is something of a lamentation. It's a way to understand a framework, a pattern of how to give the Lord our grief and how to think through the difficult, discouraging moments in our lives and in the course of events as they happen in a way that does not, uh, uh, does not elevate self, but in fact serves God's glory and retains hope for the future. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to equip us with expressions of meaningful worship when all seems lost. It seems to me that part of the reason some of the Psalms are written is that we need to be equipped with expressions of meaningful worship when all seems lost when times are trying for us. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word and let us here proclaim today Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. Here is the Holy Word of God. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful To the beasts of the earth, they have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Verse 9. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Yet let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. 
Let the groans of the prisoners come before you, according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. This is the word of God. You may be seated. While Asaph is offering up his lament and his cry, his petition, his request to the Lord because of the dire straits he finds himself and his people in, he also arises at the same time in defense of the Lord's honor. He recognizes whatever his enemies have done to take advantage of him, uh, they are infinitely more capable or culpable, his enemies that is, for provoking the Lord God of Israel which raises the question, which is a greater crisis, an attack against you or an attack against the glory of the Lord? Well, you know the answer, do you not? An attack against the glory of the Lord, provoking Him, is much more serious of eternal consequence than anything we suffer in this temporal realm. Let me ask you another question, perhaps more difficult to answer if we're honest. Which kind of attack do you take more seriously? More often than not. Attack against your person, your dignity, uh, your identity, or even your physical form? Or attack against the Lord and His glory, His honor, His renown, and what He has spoken and proclaimed? You see, Asaph understood that in order for a godly prayer to be heard, in order for uh, his prayer to be answered, he he, he could not pray amiss. You have not because you ask not, and sometimes you ask amiss, the scriptures go on to say. Therefore, Asaph equips us with expressions of meaningful worship and prayer when we are in a situation where our person is threatened, but even more important than this, that because we have aligned ourselves with the Lord, His glory is also threatened. Psalm 79 appears to be a song written for or after Uh, 586 BC. So that is the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, where the temple is pilfered, is ransacked, the vessels are stolen, the city is razed, destroyed, God's enemies are defeated, many are taken into exile. This song, may I submit, was either a prophecy of that event occurring, or it was a song written in light of that event. This date, 586 BC, marked the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem by Babylon. It would, it would seem Asaph was familiar with these times as this psalm shares similar motifs with some of his former songs. You may recall shades of comparison and parallel with Psalm 74 and Psalm 78 example as we read our text today. One extremely important point of application immediately presents itself to us. And listen closely to this. The Lord and Asaph have the same enemies. God and Asaph have the same enemies. This is extremely important. Asaph is testimony to this principle. If you stand with the Lord, you will inherit His adversaries. If you stand with the Lord, you will inherit His haters, His foes. Jesus says, blessed are you when they say all kinds of things falsely against you, Uh, on my account. Jesus says they will hate you because of me. Jesus instructed his disciples, when you follow me, that means you inherit all my foes. All my enemies will become your enemies. If they treated the Son of Man like this, you can expect to be treated the same also. Asaph knew this as well. He was testimony to this fact. Acts 5.41, the disciples knowing this from their Lord and then living it In their early life, an apostolic witness, they echo this theme from the New Testament. Do you remember this quote? And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. If the church, this is an important point I feel in light of the challenges, especially culturally, that face the church in America today. If the church continues to ally herself with culturally popular concerns which assume the authority and priority of Christ's enemies, we will provoke him to our own demise. 
It is to say, we must share the same enemies as Christ and not align ourselves with any of them. If the church continues to ally herself with culturally popular concerns, this is just another name term for idolatry. This is why the destruction came upon Jerusalem in the first place in Psalm 79, in 586 B.C. with the destruction of the temple. It's because the people of God at that time were allying themselves, aligning themselves, associating themselves with culturally popular concerns, the ideas, the notions, the loves, the affections, and the gods of the day. And these things that are outside the boundaries of covenant and that which God prescribes and that which God exalts and proclaims in His Word, they assume authority and priority of Christ's enemies, things that they love, things that they promote, things that they say, or that they dictate by their own presumptuous, autonomous decree. If we hang on to these, we'll find ourselves in the wake of God's judgments eventually. We will provoke Him to our own demise. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 10 says this, or reiterates this same principle. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? The Israelites at the time of Asaph's writing, generations had gone by, provoking the Lord to jealousy. They presumed that they were stronger than He. Yes, God had spoken to them, but they had a better word from their neighbors, they thought. Uh, yes, God has said certain things, but we will establish ourselves, we will reorder things in a more preferable way. We will seek, to have a, we will seek the friendship and favor of our neighbors at the expense of friendship and favor with God as we discussed in Psalm 78 last time. And in so doing, they provoked the Lord to jealousy. Do you remember? We've identified uh, an idea behind this term provoke. What does it mean to provoke the Lord? It's to put Him in, in the position where to defend His honor, He must prosecute you. What does it mean to provoke the Lord? By your words, your, your actions, your positions, your behavior, your attitude, your affections, you put the Lord in a position in order to defend His honor, he must prosecute you. Asaph recognizes all this in Psalm 79. It is a profound work of lamentation. There is much we can learn. Let us consider instructive elements of worship in distress. Worship in distress from Asaph today. We'll go through them quickly as there are five points this morning. But I think it's important for us because we find ourselves in some ways similar circumstances today. We are challenged with difficulty around us to be sure. Number one, there's an anguish and lament that Asaph expresses. This is an instructive element of worship. There's room in worship for anguish for, uh, and, and lament for this uh, sense of uh, sadness, weeping, and sorrow, <clears throat> and great agony expressed to the Lord. Secondly, there's an appeal to the covenant. And you'll notice this is a reiterated and a reiterated theme all through the, the Psalms. There's constantly an appeal to the covenant. What is covenant? Well, of course, it's the terms of relationship established between a higher and a lesser party. And in the case of the ultimate of covenants, it's the relationship that the Lord establishes with His people. The terms and conditions where when they are met, His people are in good standing with Him in His favor as His subjects, dutifully so, following His word and worshiping Him. Uh, thirdly, there's atonement, supplication. There's a cry, a supplication is an earnest request and an entreaty for atonement. That is the covering of sins. That's the most important section, may I submit, may I suggest, is verses 8 through 9. And then number four, there's accounting for grievances. There is a sense of justice and, and where the grievances against the Lord fall and His answers accordingly. And finally, there's adoration vows. There's promises to worship, to lift up His name, but they're not superficial. They are profound, and we'll see why. So let us consider the first instructive element of worship in Asaph's psalm under anguish and lament. Consider again verses 1 through 4, and ask yourself, what sorts of things moved Asaph to sadness? What sorts of things drove him to the throne of grace to cry and to lift up his anguish and to lift up his sorrow to the Lord? O God, the nations have come into your inheritance they have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens, 
for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. So the question remains, what sorts of things moved the psalmist, moved Asaph to bring a lament, a prayer and a praise, a worship song of sadness before the Lord? The first, I would say, is the profaning of godly things. Turn to verse 1 or look at verse 1 again. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Notice the priority concern in Asaph's psalm is that the holy things of God, the things that were set apart and meant to be guarded for His glory, the things, the precious gifts of eternal significance that were granted to the people of God to steward, to protect, and to appreciate have been trampled by the enemy. They have been spurned and neglected by the people and then overrun and ransacked by his foes. This is priority one. Asaph enters into the presence of God and he doesn't say, first and foremost, I am so weary, please give me energy for today. I have so much stress, can you relieve me of some? Or can you show me your will for my life? Or I'm lonely right now, or why haven't you healed me yet? Whatever personal, individual requests he might be tempted to place as priority, he sets it aside and he gives us a meaningful expression of worship when thing, all seems lost by making his priority concern the glory of God. The nations have come into your inheritance. Inheritance refers to that which God owns. Inheritance is the wealth, you know, the uh, estate that is tied to the testator, that which is God's and God's alone. God had a people and God had a place, and he had paid for those at a high cost. Ultimately, he paid for his people, and he paid for that place of communion with his people at the cost of his son's blood. This is even clearer for us in the new covenant. Would that we were good stewards of that which God paid the price of his son's blood to purchase. And if we see the realm of Christ overrun by adversaries, would that we make it a priority in our prayer to bring His honor and His concerns to, uh, to a prayer before Him, to His throne, first and foremost. The enemy was profaning the godly things. They had defiled His holy temple, and they had laid Jerusalem in ruins. How sad was the day when the vessels of the temple, you know, golden instruments. Perhaps the Ark of the Covenant, we're not sure what all the vessels were, but certainly drinking utensils and the accoutrements and the beautiful things that God had commanded His servants, His artisans, and equipped them by His Holy Spirit's inspiration to, to design according to absolute, perfect, Spirit-inspired specifications through pages and pages of the book of Exodus. Perhaps you do not perhaps it's hard for us to realize the value of these things. These things were created by artists, not just anyone could recreate them. They were artists that were given the power by the Holy Spirit to fashion instruments that God had dictated every last detail from by his spoken word to his servant Moses. It was like holding God's word in a sense. And these things were stolen. They were packed on mules. And they were taken as war trophies for Babylon. And then they were used in irreverent ways. Or drunken revelries and the like. You remember Belshazzar drinking from these vessels after the exile of the people of God and the ransacking of the city. And this ought to make you devastated if you realized the power and the significance of this moment. This was priority one, the defiling of the temple and the laying of Jerusalem in ruins. Secondly, under anguish and lament, what sorts of things move Asaph to sadness? The body count of his people. Verse 2, they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds and the heavens for food, the beasts of your faithful, I'm sorry, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. 
The body counting increases, if you will, as the soldiers surround. And pretty soon the fields of battle are strewn with the slain. And so overwhelming is the task of burying them that the birds will peck at their flesh, no doubt, because the people are in chains or too few in number to do anything about it. Verse 3 describes the scope of this devastation. They have poured out their blood like water. So the enemies have poured out the blood of Asaph's people like water all around Jerusalem. There's no one to bury them. Then they have become a taunt to the neighbors. You can say a byword. Mocked and derided by those around us. This moved Asaph to sadness. The scope of devastation was unfathomable. Unless you've been in a war, unless you've been in a genocide or a devastating, devastating killing field, to the scope that he describes, I think it would be hard exactly to feel the weight of what's going on. But more so than the mere slaughter of human flesh, there is this dehumanizing, this loss of dignity, and this utter reversal of dominion that's spoken of in verse 2. You see, God had designed man and his dignity and obedience before him to take dominion, to be in charge of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. The beasts that created things under man are his to dispatch of as he wills. And note these times in Scripture of upheaval where man is given over to the mercy of the beasts, when his body becomes food for the birds instead of birds being food for him. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. Reminds us in 1 Samuel 17, does it not, when the taunts of the evil one personified in Goliath standing nine feet tall or something like that, over God's servant David. What does he say? I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. I will so strip you of your dignity that I will reverse God's intention in the created order and you will be made so low the beasts will rule over you and you will become their food. Incidentally, this didn't come true. Goliath did no such thing. But in 1 Samuel 17, 46, David matched taunt for taunt and said, no, the exact opposite is true. In a matter of moments, paraphrase, I will slay you, cut off your head, and you will be food for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And because David loved the Lord, was in covenant with him, was obedient to him, and cared about the priority which was the glory of the Lord. How will you let this uncircumcised Philistine make God and his people look stupid? Shame on you, he says. Priority one for David as Asaph, that the holy things would not be profaned. And if he was the last man standing, he wouldn't stand for it. And so he did. He took up his sling, and as God's servant, he dispatched his enemy. But the people of God, in this case, in Asaph's day, because of their idolatry, were overrun by the Goliaths, if you will, of their neighbors. And thus they had become subject to this great horror, being uh, reduced to almost, or to being reduced to less than nothing. They become a byword to their neighbors. Those who once respected and feared the children of Israel, now they become the butt of their jokes. Do you hear, but did you hear about the Israelite who... And then all the Philistines laugh at the punchline. Did you hear about the guy who thought he was cool because he came across the Red Sea on dry land? Well, he tripped over a Midianite and was taken captive. Suddenly, God's people had lost all of their prestige and all of the history that attended their way that was to be a light and a beacon of truth and God's glory and power to their neighbors. All that seemed to be erased. We have become a taunt to our neighbors mocked and derided by those around us. When the testimony of God's glory is diminished among His people, that ought to move us to sadness. Are there ways that the church today has not stood when the pressure is on, but has capitulated to the idolatry of the hour, and in so doing, reduced herself in dignity and authority, and become a casualty of the spirit of the age? These days, these things absolutely are a factor. They happen more in the area and the realm of ideas at this moment than they do necessarily on literal killing fields. That's not to say there could be killing fields one day, 
Lord, have mercy on us, because we certainly deserve it. There are killing fields in the womb. Abortion, if you took the bones of the babies who have been slaughtered by our own hands in this land, we, the killing fields stretch into the distance beyond comprehension. The body count ought to move us to sadness. It's too easy for us to overlook these things. The Word of God comes to us through the voice of Asaph today to call our attention to that which ought to trouble the soul. Not stress for my schedule coming up or the little petty things and day-to-day issues and a common cold that afflicts me one too many times and I prefer this winter. All those things God is sufficient to answer our prayers for. Don't get me wrong. They are not priority. What moves us in anguish and prayer to make our priority requests before the Lord to intervene? Is it the temporal and the passing and the petty? Or is it the profaning of godly things and the increased body count and the devastation, evidencing the wickedness of wayward hearts? Is it the degradation of the Christian witness that turns a once great and consistent confession into a joke in the minds of the onlookers and the rebels? This is cause, brothers and sisters, for anguish and lament. Secondly, appeal to covenant. Instructive element of worship in distress. Appeal to covenant. Asaph has lamented to the Lord. He's come to him with the problem. He's delivered his request. And now he makes his appeal to covenant. Verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. There are key phrases in here that go hand in hand with covenant. How long, O Lord, will you burn in anger and jealousy? That term jealousy is a particular sentiment. Jealousy indicates it presumes a relationship, a close and intimate relationship, such that if that relationship uh, breaks in its trustworthiness or if there are issues and it's in trust, then jealousy is the commensurate sentiment or emotion that is felt. When, a husband, when spouses are unfaithful to one another, it is right for the wrong spouse to feel that jealousy burn within them. And in this case, God had entrusted Himself to His people in an intimate relationship for which marriage was a picture. And His people had been unfaithful. They had been lewd and profligate. They had prostituted their affections. They had abandoned Him and left their lover who laid Himself down for them to worship other gods. And in so doing, they provoked the Lord to jealousy. And so this is the particular sentiment that presumes covenant at play here. Now Asaph wants to see the breach repaired. He seeks for reconciliation, redemption, and atonement. But in so doing, he recognizes the nature of the offense. The people have wronged you. They have been unfaithful. But, O Lord, would you bring repentance through your strong hand of chastisement so that you may not be angry forever and that your jealousy will not burn like fire until every last one of us are gone? Would you remember your covenant, O Lord, and instill within us a memory, return our memory to that covenant as well, that we may be reconciled to you? Jealousy is a particular sentiment reserved for a close relationship, a personal marital union bond of covenant. So this is a covenant appeal. Who are the objects of wrath? Verse 6, the Asaph, our author, hopes that they will be reversed. So far, his people, God's people, are the objects of his wrath and jealousy. But Asaph asks, by appeal to covenant, that he would reverse the situation, that he would uh, that he would re, uh, reassign, reassign his, the object of his wrath to his enemies, his pagan enemies. Pour out your anger, he says in verse 6, on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Those who are outside the bounds of covenant do not call upon the name of the Lord, nor do they know him. They are outcasts, the unclean. They're outside the boundaries of his favor. They do not inhabit His place. They have not received covering for their sins. There is no sacrifice provided. And Asaph asks that the anger of the Lord 
be removed beyond the perimeters of his covenant lands and that it would find itself a worthy subject on the enemies of God's people and not on their heads. But he also knows that none of this is possible without repentance. None of this is possible. And that will bring up point number three. Before we get there, though, in verse 7, one more note of covenant. There is a promise and a name, there's a promise attached to a name that he refers to. And this is not by accident. Again, it's an appeal to covenant, a reason why he refers to his people as Jacob. He says, For they have devoured Jacob, meaning the enemies of your people, have devoured your people, identified as Jacob, and laid waste his habitation. Our worship text this morning described exactly the habitation of Jacob that Asaph refers to, refers to, may I submit. In Genesis 28, Jacob named that place of habitation, if you will, Bethel. And he dreamed, Jacob did, behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it uh, reached into heaven and behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So here we have a connection, a bridge between the glory of God's realm and where Jacob was. The promise of Abraham is reiterated, as you remember from our worship text. And it brings a Jacob to awe-struck worship. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The Lord opened the eyes and the experience of Jacob to realize that he was in this place. Jacob, when Jacob became aware of that truth, he erected an altar. He named the place Bethel, and he understood the significance of his name, Jacob. He wasn't just an isolated individual with his own ideas, with God blessing his stupid dreams. Jacob was the son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Abraham was the son, if you will, of God. Well, you could go back to Adam, then of God. There is a, a progression and a lineage of God's favor through this family line, and there are promises and covenant that terminate on Jacob and his lineage, and God will be absolutely faithful to accomplish them. And to this, the author makes his appeal. He knows that this place that's represented by Bethel now continues represented in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, in the sacrificial system, in the holy temple. So he therefore pleads for justice against those who have devoured Jacob, the inhabitants of Bethel, those who are the recipients of God's communion and laid waste his habitation, the place of God's dwelling with man. Thirdly, atonement supplication. Again, I tell you, Asaph knows none of this will happen if the people remain obtuse and hard-hearted, stone cold on the inside if they do not repent. And so, therefore, he seeks for atonement. An instructive element of worship in distress is that we would recognize, affirm, love, appreciate, proclaim, and pray for those who don't have it, atonement. Verses 8 and 9. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your com compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. For your name's sake. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. First of all, in this section, the gospel, salvation is all about selective memories. Uh, the, there's remembrance aspects to the truth of God's word. Salvation is all about what is remembered and what is forgotten, if you will. The Lord forgets our sin in the sense when it is covered by the blood of Christ, it is no longer in the remembrance category of that which is deserving of judgment. The price has been paid. The record of debt that was against us is nailed to the cross. And in that sense, He remembers our sin no more. How often do we remember that moment? There is a call to remembrance of the Lord for the forgetfulness of our sin in the work of Christ on Calvary. And the sacrificial system of old prefigured this, but we have it fulfilled in perfect jot and tittle and detail in Christ. And so we remember each day when we participate, each uh, Lord's Day morning for Sunday of the month is our pattern here at the Lord's table. We remember the Lord, that He did not remember our sin, but on Christ purchased our atonement. 
And so there is a call in Psalm 79 to remember and, and for forgetfulness, if you will. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let compassion come speedily to us. Asaph is asking for God's, God's active compassion, his seeking out, his purposeful love, his pursuit of his people, because he knows that God's affections are not passive or reactive or sentimental. We love him because he first loved us, and his love for us is of the kind that he sets the 99 in a safe space and goes against all odds in an inefficient, by man's standards, manner through bramble bush and hill and crag and valley, mountain, and he gets that one lost sheep. It's a purposeful, active compassion. It is a sovereign pursuit and apprehension. It is a drawing irresistibly unto salvation. This is the compassion that Asaph seeks from the Lord. The active love that would pursue his wayward bride, convict her of sin, and pull her back into his good graces. Not remember her former iniquities, but cleanse her by blood again, that she may be the radiant bride once more, in spite of her adultery. Finally, under atonement supplication, Asaph speaks of vicarious atonement, that is, in the place of another, the covering of sins by another sacrifice by someone else. This is huge. This is the most important verse in my judgment in this psalm. And the phrase most important in verse 9 is atone for our sins. Help us, O Lord, of our, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. What? We can't atone for our sins? No, saint. Neither then nor now can anyone atone for his own sins. As Hebrews has taught us so diligently and consistently and, and, and de in a detailed manner, those priests who went before had to offer sacrifices for their sins and for the sins of their people. And their office was an insufficient one. They didn't continue forever because they were prevented by death from being that eternal high priest. But there was another, according to the order of Melchizedek, who was equipped to sufficiently atone for our sins. He remains a priest forever by the power of an indestructible life. And he is our forerunner, having fulfilled the law and satisfied the terms of justice in his death on Calvary. He is our forerunner into glory, ever lives to make intercession for you and for me as our high priest. This is what Asaph is praying for. This is God atoning for his people. Think of it, brothers and sisters. The temple was destroyed. It was gone. The priests were slaughtered. No doubt, and or captured and in exile. The system of assurance whereby you knew by these outward symbols that you were in good stead with the Lord. You had reason to be assured and at peace with Him was gone, overrun. Yet there was a man in the wake of this destruction who understood that atonement could yet be provided. Why? Because man does not atone for his sins. And a mere earthly priest does not atone for his sins. And a, mere temp uh, and, a, and a mere physical temple is not the ultimate place of reconciliation with man. There would come another. And his work and his place in that temple would be absolutely indestructible. And for this, Asaph prays, atone for our sins in the temple that cannot be destroyed by the priest who's not a man by God in flesh, appearing a God with us, Messiah, someday come. Psalm 22 speaks all about this coming Messiah. Study it on your own time and compare these elements of worship and distress to Psalm 22. I submit to you, both Psalms share the same ones. In the one, atonement is asked for, Psalm 79. In the other, atonement is provided prophetically in the death of Christ proclaimed in Psalm 22. Powerful. Point number four this morning. Instructive element of worship in distress. Accounting for grievances. We continue in verses 10 through 12. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpour blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. There's an appeal here to justice. The psalmist knows his scriptures well enough to know what is a punishable crime, an actionable offense against the perfect Lord of glory. 
And when his servants, the ones who are innocent, the ones who are serving him, are martyred, when they're overrun, when they are tyrannized, when their blood is spilled by the avenger, the Lord marks those things and he avenges them. What does Jesus say? He reminds the unfaithful, the covenant breakers of his day, the religious tyrants, that the Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. And in all the way through into Revelation as well, Abel's blood crying out for justice joins with all who have been oppressed of his people through the years, who have been martyred for the faith, who have paid high prices for their commitment to the Lord. And it cries out that he would intervene. And it is just and right that we would pray that God would heed the cries of those who have been slain for his name and that he would intervene and defeat his enemies. And as we often say, I first heard it from a preacher, I respect Joe Moorcraft. And I always remember this, I trust, I hope. He said, the Lord defeats his enemies two ways. One, he brings them to their knees in repentance. And secondly, he brings, the second way is he brings them to their knees in judgment and destruction. That's how the Lord defeats his enemies. Asaph knows this, and he prays accordingly. If God will not bring his enemies to their knees in repentance, may he bring his enemies to their knees in destruction. Let the vengeance of the Lord, your righteous anger, be turned upon those who have belittled you, compromised your name, taken lightly your, uh, your word and your ways, and spurned and made a mockery of your holiness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? You see, Asaph is concerned with the testimony of God's power among the nation. Uh, those Christians, I don't see any truth to what they believe. After all, what has their God done for them? So we pray, O oh God, show yourself powerful and show yourself strong, so that the mocking voice of the accuser, accuser will be silenced by your justice, if it's not silenced by your conviction before he speaks. The world right now doesn't have warm feelings in their heart towards true Christian belief, do they? No, they don't. But too often, Christians change, spin, augment, you know, shift, adjust where they stand and what they say to try to curry some favor with our pagan neighbors. Is this the right response? Remember what we've said from Psalm 78. Favor with the unbelieving culture around you always comes at the cost of favor with the Lord. No. Stand. And if your blood must be shed, that goes into a repository of, of, uh, that screams for justice, if you will. If you suffer for Christ's name's sake, He remembers. And at the point of His choosing, His patience will meet its assigned end, and He will intervene. And in this way, the unbeliever will shut his mouth when he sees the awesome power of our God. How did God shut Pharaoh's mouth? He did it with ten plagues, culminating in the death of his future lineage, his son, by the angel, messenger of God, commission. We've gone through that story because Psalm 78 recounts those events. He will do it again. He has done it. He will do it. So let us pray accordingly. In this accounting for uh, grievances, Asaph pleads on behalf of the vulnerable, verse 11, Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. And at this point, he is asking for the Lord to be their intercessor. They are left without a priest. Priest, No one, humanly speaking at this time, to talk to God on their behalf, the job of a priest. But he is asking God to do it himself. He, let the groans of the prisoners come before you. In other words, may you intervene at this time. And in spite of the devastation of the priesthood and the temple, may you hear, according to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Intercede for them. Even though there is no priest in the temple tonight, making prayers and cries for us because we are in captivity or it's been destroyed. We asked a question when we were in the book of Jonah. Jonah, in chapter 2, I believe, twice it says that his prayers were heard before the throne of the Lord. And we asked, who was Jonah's priest? Uh, who represented Jonah? He wasn't in the temple. 
He had run away from the Lord. He was out in the wilderness. How did he find favor with God? Well, the answer is the same as the answer to the question, who is your priest? Jesus Christ hears the prayers of his people. He is the ultimate priest. The groans and the cries of the destitute and afflicted were heard before the Lord. And upon the future payment of his son, they came before his ears. And the Lord preserved for himself a remnant in answer to Asaph's prayer. And so he does today. He intercedes for us through his son, whoever lives to make intercession, as we've said. And so we, though we may be prisoners and at times doomed to die, are the vulnerable ones whom the Lord will intervene to save in his due time. He will usher us unto glory, even if our call is martyrdom. And in this way, we have eternal life. Finally, this morning, after Asaph pleads for retribution, returning sevenfold upon the neighbors who have taunted the uh, people of God, he makes his final point in adoration vows. These, again, are instructive elements of worship and distress. We've covered anguish and lament, an appeal to covenant, a request for atonement, the accounting for grievances, and finally, there's adoration, worship vows. Verse 13, this is the closure, this is the apex, the climax, and the commitment of the psalm. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. First of all, there is a submission here. The relationship of sheep to shepherd is the picture, the analogy that we are familiar with from other psalms, are we not? Psalm 23, among the most popular, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture. That relationship presumes care, attention, leadership, authority, a submission on our behalf, but it's a submission unto nurturing and provision, direction and supply. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, as we submit to you, Asaph is saying, will give thanks to you forever, offering thanksgiving to the Lord as a suitable offering of praise, not an offering of atonement. He knows that they can't provide atonement. The priesthood is demolished. Ultimately, that can't provide atonement anyways. Atone for our sins, but we will nevertheless bring a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of praise is not one of atonement. It doesn't cover sins it's merely the expression of joy, the overflowing of the redeemed heart, knowing that he's in good stead with the Lord, seeking to live in light of that glorious reality. And so he praises and thank, thanks the Lord as we do each Lord's Day here, I trust. As the Lord moves upon your heart, remembrance of his great work for you, the gratitude that you should offer to him on account of his atonement that he has made for you. And finally... Asaph commits to do this from generation to generation. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. In family worship, last night I was asking the crew if that reminded them of the previous psalm at all. I think it recalls the first part of Psalm 78, and actually the whole thing. But you remember these words. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, as Asaph has said in this psalm. He goes on to describe things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. Verse 4, particular note. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. The adoration vows, the commitment to worship, is one of multi-generational, transgenerational, if you will, worship. One that doesn't just give a flash in the plan, oh, thank you with a, um, a momentary overflowing of emotion, but a consistent transfer of these and stewardship of these, treasured, uh, of these treasured experiences and the life of the believer to then the stewardship of the next generation. The call to worship is the call to teach. The call to adoration and praise is the call to educate your children in the nurture, the admonition, of the Lord, to recount his deeds and to etch upon their hearts through the repeated use of God's means in your family worship time, in your prayers, and your attention to their questions, to etch upon their souls the truths of the Lord, so deep and indelibly that the devastating power of the enemy to ransack at different times 
you know, areas of your dwelling will not overflow that strength of heart. Asaph was not conquered in his soul. His people and his land, his nation, his city and the temple, they were all overrun. Asaph was not conquered. He stood, why? Because his heart understood the works of the Lord. And he committed in this prayer to share these things with others. Did he do it? What are we doing today? We are reading the very words he may have given his life to preserve. We don't know. Perhaps it was illegal for him to write these things down. We are reading his very words. Yes, he did it. His words endure even today in God's providence, thousands of years later. And now we use them. If we are faithful to his instruction, the Spirit through him, to teach, to train our children. Assuming the duties of Psalm 78, Asaph cries in Psalm 79, establish in answer to our cries a praiseworthy event that will arrest the praises and amazement of multiple generations to come. Asaph cries in Psalm 79, in so many words, O Lord, establish in answer to our cries a praiseworthy event that will arrest the praises and amazement of multiple generations to come. This is how we pray in sadness. This is an equipping and an expression of meaningful worship in times of great loss. This posture of petition, of petitionary praise that Asaph assumes exalts the glory of God. It avoids the pitfalls of crisis prayer, which often assume a posture of self-exaltation, as the occasion for petition is limited to the plight of the people making their requests known, Psalm 79 provides a template for redeeming sadness. Again, it is a way, it equips us with expressions of meaningful worship when all seems lost. It teaches us how to glorify God in the midst of suffering. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your holy word. It is powerful indeed. And within its pages, Lord, is the effective means for us to be fortified and equipped with tools of defense and offense to stand and to grow as your people, even taking ground for you. We recognize this, and I pray, Lord, our faith would be stirred, Lord Jesus, to live it as we move from this place. I thank you, God, for the record of your faithfulness all through history and for preserving it for us. May it give us great encouragement in our day when, yes, pressures are great, but your word, we confess, is greater still. Thank you for this truth. Lord, I pray for those who are called to put this word into practice this week, that you would give them by your spirits, enabling the use of the scriptures to proclaim them to their children and continue to bless these efforts, we pray, that we might take the example and the instruction of Asaph, your servant, to heart and to walk in this way that we might stand in the day of trial. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.